So uh, I am right now uh, in, going into the third week of my no shaving policy. What do you think? <laughs> Is it growing on you? It's growing on me. Yes. So yeah, so uh, if you don't know, I, I have a little little tiny role in this movie that they're doing, and I'm playing a homeless person, so I, have, uh, I can't shave for six, seven, eight weeks. And so we'll see where this goes. Uh, my wife's actually starting to like it. She's starting, starting to, so we'll, we'll see. And I'm not trying to dress younger than my age, but I see, I, 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 I get the clothes handed to me. The only thing I ever bought that I'm wearing now is my underwear. Everything else was given to me. So if you get it for free, you wear it. So I got the hood thing here. It doesn't serve any purpose so far as I can tell, but I, I don't know. It's free. It's free. So... And the uh, uh, commuting award uh, for visitors today goes to uh, Matthias uh, from Germany. Where are you? From Germany. Uh, there he is. Over there. Hey, blessings, brother. He's one of our parishioners. He's the head of our organization, Aura International, and we're partnering with them to do some work in Haiti and some other things. And uh, he's got a great kingdom heart. Just met him today. So, so welcome to Woodland Hills. Good to have you here. Now, we're in the book of Luke. <laughs> We got out of that, finally. We're in Colossians, and we're all the way up to verse 15, hallelujah. Uh, we're, we're entering here in a couple of verses, about five verses that are just incredible. I mean, th- we're going to hover on this for a little while. Not six years, but for a little while. Um, this is a hymn, verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1, is a, is a hymn or a creed uh, that was recited or sung in the early church. Most scholars hold this view anyways. And Paul just sort of incorporated it here at this point in his, his, uh, his letter uh, and gave it his own kind of theological spin. And it is just packed with beautiful theology. And I'm going to warn you that today's message is, is, is going to be a teaching time and a theological time. Uh, sometimes I'm more motivational. The last couple of weeks have been more like that. There's other times where we just uh, get into it and, and, and it gets theologically kind of condensed. So Keep, keep your thinking caps on and be paying attention. Uh, this stuff is, is important, but it requires some thinking. All right? So Colossians chapter 1, uh, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to hover on, on verse 15. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now, the term firstborn, by the way, is not a chronological term. He's not saying he was born first, but in the first century Jewish culture... It was a title of, of, of supremacy, uh, of dignity. Uh, to be the firstborn meant, meant, meant that you were the heir of, of, of everything. And so here he's the firstborn over all creation. It's not that he's the firstborn before creation or, or anything like that. It's he's over creation. And we'll see here in the rest of this hymn, as you find throughout the New Testament, that Jesus pre-existed all of creation. He didn't come into being at a certain point in time. His divinity, he's always been. But he's the firstborn over all creation. He's the heir of everything. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's the point of everything. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, the body, the church. He's the beginning And the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God, listen to this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of it. 
And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Incredible hymn. Paul's here putting Jesus in its cosmic context. And, and Jesus, the significance of Jesus engulfs and defines everything. We're going to focus on verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for your spirit being here during this worship time and just the peace and the joy that is, is in your presence. And I thank you, God, for every person who's in this auditorium uh, and, and uh, you've been working in their life and brought them to this point. And every person who's listening, listening through podcasts or watching on television or any other way, Lord God, I, I just thank you for them and I bless them. And, and Lord, we together pray that you would now take this word and infuse it with your authority that we would get it, that we would get it, that we'd really get it. That you are as beautiful as you reveal yourself to be in Jesus, your one true image. Help it to get in, to sink in, to get deep. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So we're talking about the image of God, so I want to entitle this message, The One True Image. Because Jesus, will see, is the one true image of God. Now this phrase, image of God has two connotations to it, okay? Uh, insofar as Jesus is fully God, and he is fully God, the emphasis is on the fact that he's the image of the invisible God. Okay? So he reveals what God really is like. He's the one and only image of God in that sense. But the image of God also, insofar as Jesus is fully human, and he is fully human, uh, the emphasis is on the image. He's the image of the invisible God. And in that capacity, he reveals what it is to really be a human being. So Jesus, being fully God and fully human, reveals what it is to be God and what it is to be human. And he does both at the same time. I told you this was going to be theological. Now, I, I, I wanted to talk about both of those connotations in this message. But I got so wrapped up in the first emphasis that if I was going to deal with Jesus as, as, as revealing what it is to be a true human being, I would have had to rush it, like just really pack it in at the end. And the stuff is just way too good to do that. So, so I'm going to deal with that next week. Next week's going to be a really good sermon. This one kind of sucks. But next week, man, it's going to be really good. All right? So just, you want to come back for that. So we're going to look at Jesus as the image of God, revealing what God's really like. Um, the, the, I, 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 I talk about this quite a bit. I, I emphasize this theme now and then because I think it's all important. I don't think there's anything more important than this. Uh, Jesus is the revelation of God. And so this will be review for some, although I, I, I've never packed, I've never kind of compartmentalized it the way I, I have here. I, I, I'm really kind of packing it all in here. You'll see it's going to get real dense here in a moment. Uh, but it will be review for some, but that doesn't bother me. Because this topic here is absolutely foundational to everything. What do you think about God? What's your image of God? Everything will be affected by this. Uh, it's also one of the kind of distinctive uh, defining points of Woodland Hills Church. This is not a teaching that is found everywhere or even in most other places, which is why it, it, it's hard to get inside. It's, it's hard to really internalize. So it's not bad to come back and review this and go over it again and again and again. In fact, I encourage folks on this one, if you're taking notes, you're going to have to write fast, and you may want to download this and listen to it a couple of times because this is the kind of thing that's got to get in on the inside. Uh, and it confronts, for a lot of us, some traditional teaching, um, and which is why it's more difficult to get on the inside. So 
Keep your thinking caps on, and here we go. Here's why this is so, so foundational. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, which, which, which speaks about our fall, you find that we are estranged from God, alienated from God, and under bondage to sin and the devil, primarily because we believe a false picture of God. In Genesis 3, the serpent shows up and says to Eve, did God say that if you eat of that tree, you're going to die? Well, he's a liar. You're not going to die. And then he says, the reason why God didn't want you to eat of that tree is because God knows that, that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be wise like he is. So he's threatened by you. So he gives this picture of God as this pathetic, threatened, lying deity. And so Eve can't trust that kind of God. Who could trust a God like this? So Eve is on her own, and now she acts on her own to meet her own needs to be all that she can be. When we believe a deceptive picture of God, we don't trust God to be our fullness of life, and so we do life on our own. And the, the main way that we come under the oppression of the devil and the main chain he's got on us are the false pictures of God that we believe about him. This is the essence of our fall, the essence of our sin, the essence of our bondage. The false pictures that we believe about God. Our relationship with God is totally dependent on what we think about him, how we view him. If you look at history, you'll find that you know, throughout the, the theology of, of, of religions throughout history and, and paganism, you'll find demonic pictures of God. You find portraits of, of God, of, of the gods, demanding child sacrifice. You'll find portraits of God uh, who enslave human beings. And you'll find these the theology of the gods, when they get angry, if we don't serve them good enough, they throw their thunderbolts at us, or they cause earthquakes, or they strike us with plagues or famines or what have you. Just these nasty pictures of God that runs throughout history. You'll find, as a common denominator to almost all of these religions uh, throughout history, uh, the idea of God being in favor of one nation versus others, and the gods motivate people to go to war, and, and so people fight for God and country, going all the way back to Homer and before that. Pictures of God that just are not trustworthy, that don't evoke our, 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 our love for them. In philosophy, in the Western tradition, you find something a little different. You have uh, a different kind of deceptive portrait of God, where in the Western tradition, anyways, God was defined as, as, as holy other, holy other, alien to everything in this world. Uh, they define God by way of negation. He's not this and he's not that, but he's really unknowable in himself. And so you come up with this picture of God who's, 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 who's unfathomable and, and, and who's frozen in his timelessness and who can't, who's, above, who's above emotions and doesn't change in any respect and can't be affected by anything outside of himself. And how do you have a relationship with a God like that? See, but that's, that runs throughout the, the whole Western tradition. And even in the church, people embrace all over the place Deceptive pictures of God. Uh, pictures of God that just are not beautiful. Uh, I spoke with a young lady last week after uh, one of the services. She said, dear young lady. And, and she's coming out of a context where uh, she was taught that uh, you know, the, the main thing is the glory of God and the supremacy of God, which I totally agree with. But in, in this the theology of, of, of her church, the glory of God was defined as God's right to do anything he wants. God's power. To do anything he wants. And so the glory of God is, is when God flexes his muscle and, and sends uh, the earthquake or takes your child or, or predestines people to go to hell. Why? Because he can. That's the glory of God. And, and she read one of my books and that gave a little different picture of God and, and, and starts, started her on a journey. And she's going through, as you, we always do when we're, we're changing our theologies, you know, kind of a cognitive dissonance and, and it's kind of a painful thing. But I love the fact that she's got the courage to go on that journey. 
Uh, but the question that we're asking is, what is glorious about that? What is glorious about that? That God can do this. Of course he can. He's omnipotent. But what's glorious about that? And, and how do you genuinely have a, a passionate love for a God like that? Uh, how do you genuinely say that this God is altogether beautiful? When, for all you know, it was your brother or your daughter or, or, or your father who he predestined to go to hell. Deceptive pictures of God. See, these false pictures keep us in bondage. Because our relationship with God is totally dependent, dependent on our, the, the image we have of him. Our love for God, our passion for God can never outrun the beauty of our conception of him. To the degree that our picture of God is ugly, to the degree that our picture of God replicates what went on in Genesis 3, we're in bondage. And to that degree, it's going to sabotage our relationship with him. We may still act and say the right things, but it's not going to be in our heart to do it. Everything hangs on our picture of God. One more thing before I really get into this. And this is big. One of the reasons why I think folks have pictures of God that to some degree undermine their passion for God is that we tend to have a composite picture of God. We don't go to one source to find out what God is like. We tend to sort of have this conglomeration where we pull from a lot of different sources. And so our picture of God is influenced by things that were taught us when we were growing up and things that were said and experiences that we had and the book that we read and the song that we heard. We put it all together. And that's our picture of God. Kind of, we just shake it all up, and there it is. It ends up being kind of a Picasso God. You know, it's all kind of disjointed. The pieces don't fit. And to some degree, it's going to sabotage your passion for God. That if you have that picture of God, for for most Christians, the way it works, one of the main sources we we, we go to is that we not we have Jesus, but we also then go to the Old Testament, and and. Uh, we, we give the portraits of God in the Old Testament the same authority as we give to the portrait of God revealed in Jesus. And we put them all together and mix it all up, and that's our composite picture of God. So you take God telling Moses in Exodus, show them no mercy, slaughter them, referring to the Canaanites. Uh, the women, the men, the men, the women, the children, the infants, even the animals, slaughter everything that breathes. And then burn down the town. And we take that picture of God and give it the same authority as the picture of God that's revealed in Jesus, Jesus who prays, Father, forgive them with his last breath on the cross. We put the two together and we shake it up and that's our picture of God. And it's no wonder that some people have a kind of schizo God, a schizophrenic God, where it's like, man, how do you put those things together? And to some degree that sabotages our relationship with them. Now maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Because if the whole Bible is inspired, aren't all the pictures of God equally valid? I believe with all my heart that the Bible, the whole Bible, is, is divinely inspired. But what I'm going to say now, in the next 20 minutes or so, is this. The Bible itself teaches us that that's not the right way to go about things. The Bible itself teaches us that, that, that our, our picture of God is to be drawn exclusively from Jesus. The Bible itself, we're going to now see, teaches us that, that the revelation of God in Jesus trumps everything else. And everything else was there to set up the revelation of God in Christ. All right? Ready to, ready to dive into this? Are you ready to dive into this? Okay. It's going to get theological. Put on your thinking caps. Here we go. So the enemy uh, deceived us with a, uh, with a false picture of God that's been running throughout history and is going on yet today. The New Testament reveals that Jesus uh, showed up to give us finally the true picture of God, what God is really like. He's the revelation of God. And so we find in the Bible, we just read it a little bit ago, He is the image of the invisible God. There's not a lot of images. There's one. He is the, note the singular, the image of the invisible God. And it's called the Word of God. 
The word being the expression of God, the revelation of God. There's only one of them. It's Jesus. He's the way and the truth. Truth. The word truth in Greek is aletheia. It means uncovered. And Jesus, the true God, is uncovered. And he's revealed. He's the one and only son. There's not a lot of sons of God. There's one of them. He's the one and only son. He's the radiance of God's glory. And he's the exact representation, it says in Hebrews 1. The exact representation of, of God's being. The, the, the phrase there, representation, in, in Greek is character. We get the word character from it. And, uh, uh, and so in Jesus, we see his exact character. This is his real character. And he's the character of the Father's being, of, the, of God's being. The word there is hypostasis. It means his substance, his very essence. Here we find the true character of God's very essence, which is why he alone is the radiance of God's glory. He's the only fully true revelation. Everything that preceded him was there to set up this revelation. Now you can see that if you just consider a little in a broader context that verse we just read in Hebrews 1. If you start with verse 1 of that chapter, here's what we find. The author says, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But, here's the contrast, but in these last days, which just means this last period of history, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Now, the very idea of son in, a, in, in Jewish first century culture uh, has, a, has a connotation of lookalike, the one who looks like him. So the son is, the son of God looks like God. And he's the heir of all things. He's the purpose for everything. Purpose for everything in Scripture and the purpose for everything in creation. It's all about him. And then, after setting it up that way, now the author says, the Son, and the Son alone, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So here's the contrast. In the past, God spoke through various ways through the prophets, and that was good. But now... Finally, we have the true radiance of God. We have the true glory of God. We have the, the, the exact character of God, and we have the character that goes all the way to God's innermost being. There was true things that were revealed in the past, but they didn't fully capture the real glory, the real essence, the real character going all the way to the innermost being of God. If you want to know the true character, the true radiance, the, 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 the innermost being of God, you have to keep your eyes focused on the sun. The sun alone, in contrast to everything in the past, the sun alone reveals the real glory, radiance, exact character, and essence of God. It's all found in Jesus. Now that comes out in a conversation that he had, that Jesus had with Philip in the, in, in, in the Gospel of John. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. Note the singular there. There's not a lot of ways. There's one way. There's not a lot of truths. There's one truth, and there's not a lot of ways to get life. There's only one way to get life. And that is in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And most scholars agree that John uses the concept of seeing and knowing almost interchangeably. To see is to know, to know is to see. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the only way to know God and to see God is to look at me. If you see me and you know me, you're going to know the Father. Now, Philip doesn't get it. And so he, he says this, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus, quit theologizing. Okay? Quit talking about the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even, even after all this time I've been with you, 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How then can you say, show us the Father? Philip, you want to know, you want to see the Father? Hello? <laughs> Hello? See, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's essence. And, and so to see Jesus is to see the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And Jesus is saying, don't go looking anywhere else. Don't go looking to my left or my right or before me or after me or whatever. Keep your eyes fixed on me. If you see me, you see the Father. All that you need to know about God is found in the Son, who in contrast to all that came previously is the exact representation of the Father's essence. A second century theologian named Irenaeus, he's one of my favorite early church theologians, he says, the Son is the visibility of God. Jesus is the visibility of God. Interesting phrase. It's like, it's like Jesus is the skin of God because he's the incarnation of God. Now think about this. If you want to know me personally, you've got to know me through my skin. There's, no, there's more to me than my skin, but you're not going to know the, the more to me that, to, that's in my skin than going through my skin. You've got to go through my skin to get to know me. You follow me? So also, there's more to God than Jesus because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the only way you get to know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is through Jesus. Jesus is the face of God, the embodiment of God, the skin of God, the body of God, the exact image of God, the image of the invisible God. If you want to know the invisible God, you've got to know him through the image. You following this? It's all found in Jesus, all we know, can know and need to know. Is found in Jesus. Now it gets really interesting when we look at the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to what Jesus says here. All things have been committed to me by my Father. All things. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Amazing. See, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then he is a lunatic. Uh, because uh, no one knows God except for me. That's what he's saying. <laughs> no one knows God except for me. No one ever has known God except for me. This is the most arrogant thing in the world to say unless it's true. <laughs> if it's true, well, then he's the son of God. If it's not, then he's a lunatic. That's why this idea that, oh, he's a good prophet, he's a nice teacher, it's, it's bunko. It's one or the other. Good teachers don't go around saying arrogant stuff like this. I believe he's telling the truth. He's the son of God. And so no one knows, no one knows the Father except the Son, and then whoever the Son wants to reveal him. Now, I have to believe that there's a little bit of hyperbole going on here, a little bit of exaggeratory language, which was common for, for the first century, because Jesus would, would believe, I would think, that the Old Testament folks knew some things about God. You know, he believed the Old Testament was inspired, but he is saying that compared to the revelation that's found in the Son, it's as though no one else knows God. Because what you find in the Son is the exact representation of the Father's essence. What they had before was had some true stuff, but it didn't go all the way to God's essence. didn't reveal his, his true character. No one knows the Father uh, except the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Now, in John, we're going to spend a little moment here in, in the book of John, chapter 1, because it really gets funky here. I love this stuff. Uh, he starts by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, the, the word, as I said earlier, is, is the expression of God, the spokenness of God, logos in Greek. It's, it's God revealed. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was God, and there was the word, and the word was God. And then 13 verses later, John says this. Holy Spirit, help us to stay awake and receive this stuff and keep thinking here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen, remember, seeing and knowing are, are, are almost synonymous in John. 
We have seen his glory and the glory of the, the, the one and only son. To see God's glory is to see the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Praise God. Note the stress. The one and only son. The one and only word became the one and only son. There's not a lot of these around, you know. He, he's the one and only son. And he has revealed the glory of God. Why? Because he's the exact representation of, of, of the father's essence. He's the, he's the radiance of God's glory. It's all found in Jesus, and it's full of grace and truth. Notice this, that this glory here is not the glory of God's omnipotent bicep where he says, hey, watch, people, I can do whatever I want to do. I can send people to hell if I want to. As though that was glorious. No, this isn't the glory of, of, of his omnipotence. We already knew that. This is the glory of the Son, and it's full of grace and truth. In fact, Jesus, in chapter 12 of John, says that he's glorified when he's lifted up on the cross. The glory of God is found on Calvary. The glory of God is God's beauty and willing, willingness to come down, become a human being, and give his life for a, a race of reprobate sinners like you, you and me. The glory of God is found in his servant love, his other-oriented love, uh, whereby he's willing to, to wash the feet of his disciples that he knows are going to betray him in a moment. That's the glory of God. It's a beautiful glory. It's a gracious glory. It's a joyous glory. It's not the self-absorbed, narcissistic glory of look what I can do. It's a, it's a glory of God where he's willing to give it away and, and humble himself. That's why, in fact, uh, in John 17, Jesus gives that glory away. If the glory of God was this uh, look what I can do kind of a thing, omnipotence, you couldn't give that away. Only God can do that. Right? But Jesus gives the glory away to his disciples. He says, the glory, Father, that you've given to me, I've given to them. And how can you give this glory away? Well, because the glory is servant love, sacrificial love. And so we glorify God when we act like Jesus and live like Jesus and serve like Jesus and sacrifice for Jesus and love our enemies. That's glorifying God because it looks like Jesus and Jesus is the glory of God. Amen? That's the glory of God. And that's beautiful. See, that will win your heart. Uh, that will win your allegiance. The other one does nothing but mess up with your mind and install terror in your heart. Now we move it on to the next verse in, in, in John chapter 1. Here it gets really interesting. He talks about John the Baptist. And he says, John testified concerning him, concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So he's saying, you know, the one who's going to come after, which is Jesus, is greater than me because he is before me, referring to the fact that the word was in the beginning with God. So, of course, he's, he surpasses John because he's divine. He's, he's God. He's Jesus. Now, Jesus agrees with him about this. We find this a few chapters later when Jesus says, listen to this, I have a testimony. The word can be translated witness or revelation. I have a testimony that's weightier than that of John. This term weightier is megas. We get the word mega from it. Mega mall, mega church, mega. It means, it means greater, more important, has more authority, uh, more gravity to it. Okay, so John's stuff was good, but Jesus' revelation is mega good. So, Jesus' revelation is superior to that of John. And see, well, the, well, John was inspired. He was divinely inspired in what he taught. But see, Jesus is... He has more weight than what John taught, which shows us in itself. The whole Bible is inspired, but that doesn't mean that everything has equal weight, equal authority. And we all, to some degree, know that because I don't see anyone going around today ripping off the heads of pigeons, but the Bible tells you that in the book of Leviticus. And thank you for not ripping off the heads of pigeons. But see, we understand that some things, have for, some things are intended for all time, other things not. And Jesus is saying, 
my revelation, he, what, he, what John revealed was good, but this is more important. This has more gravity. Uh, this, this, is, this is a mega revelation. Now, now, that really becomes interesting when we consider this, something else Jesus said in, in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So, if John was the greatest prophet up to Jesus, and Jesus was, has more authority, has a mega authority compared to John, where does that place Jesus relative to the Old Testament? Do the math here. If John is greater than all the Old Testament writers, and Jesus is greater than John, that means Jesus is, has got more authority, has got more importance than all the writers leading up to him. Which is why, folks, I believe it's just not valid to give of pictures of God and that these folks said true things, but they had a limited revelation of who God really was. And so to give their pictures of God the same authority as the revelation of God in Christ is, I submit to you, just muddled thinking. It waters down the beauty of the revelation of what God is really like in Jesus Christ. There's revelation there. It's all inspired, but Jesus is the ultimate revelation, the one and only perfect revelation, the absolute revelation, the non-negotiable revelation. And he's the revelation that's full of grace and truth. This is what God is really like to his very heart, to his very essence. It's all found in Jesus. But we haven't even gotten to the best part of the first chapter of John. Listen to this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. See, it, the structure of the sentence has, a, has a, on the one hand versus the other hand, uh, kind of a, 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 a intended meaning to it. So what John is saying is, on the one hand, the law came through Moses. That's fine. But now, on the other hand, in contrast, Jesus comes and reveals grace and truth. Now, what's interesting is that you would have thought that he would have contrasted the law with grace. But he doesn't just contrast the law with grace. He contrasts the law, on the one hand, with grace and truth, on the other. Which implies that when God gave the law and had all that kind of picture of God around the law stuff, uh, he was playing a role there, but it didn't reveal his true character. His true character, if you want to know what God is really like, you look to Jesus, and there you find out that God's, that God's real nature isn't really like that. God's real nature is full of grace and truth. And in case there's any doubt about it, read the next verse. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now remember, seeing and knowing are almost interchangeable in John. So to say no one has ever seen God, but the only Son, whom we see, has revealed him, he's saying no one really knows God except, except as he's revealed in the Son. And no, he says the one and only Son. There's only one. There's one revelation where God has made himself fully known, and that's in Jesus Christ. Now, I have to believe here, as it was the case we saw earlier, that there's a little bit of hyperbole being used, because John surely believes that, that Old Testament authors revealed some true things about God, but he's saying that in comparison to the revelation, the beautiful, full revelation that we have in Jesus Christ, uh, those revelations are rendered obsolete, because here we know what God is really like. He played a role back then of law and other things, but now the true character is uncovered. Truth is aletheia. Now the real God is being disclosed. And that's how he frees us from the bondage that the enemy has kept us in with all of our false pictures of God. He reveals God's true nature. He reveals the invisible God. We have to believe and trust that he really does reveal the invisible God. Uh, 
there's been a long tradition in the church among theologians and it percolates down to the average person where there's been a tendency to drive a wedge between God's image and his invisibility. Now follow me on this. I warned you that it was going to be theological, but this is really important theology here. And so there's been a tendency to say, well, the image, Jesus, is, is, is God's face towards us. But there's this invisible side of God which stays unknown. And this invisible side of God is, is, is the unknowable thing. Okay? This, the, and, and then they define this unknowable thing based on their own reasoning coming largely out of Plato as this, this, this frozen, timeless deity who, who never changes and never is affected by anything and doesn't have any kind of emotions. And that God all of a sudden looks very different than the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And you wonder why we have sometimes have schizophrenic views of God. You drive a wedge between the image, God towards us, and, and, and how God is in himself, in his transcendent state, his holy other state. You follow me here? And then what happens is sometimes people begin to project onto this unknown God, the invisible God, all sorts of their own ideas. And some of those ideas are pretty bizarre. And, and, and we end up envisioning the transcendent God to, in totally different terms than, than the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. For example, and I don't mean to pick on him, but I do a lot, but, but John Calvin uh, I guess I do mean to pick on him, but John Calvin says that in the heart of God, in, in his institutions of the Christian religion, and I love the guy, and he said some good things, also said some things I really disagree with, and this is one of them. In the heart of God, there's a horrible decree, he calls it that, a horrible decree. And the horrible decree is that the majority of, of humans born will go to hell. And he has that decree before there's ever a creation. Before you're ever born, you're either going to go to heaven or hell. See, I, that horrible, there's a dark side to God. Jesus reveals sort of the nice side of God. But there's this other unknowable, you know, deity who's altogether different. I, I submit to you, folks, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means he, the invisible God has an image. And that's Jesus Christ. He, Jesus really reveals the transcendence of God. He reveals God all the way down to the essence, not just a part of God, not just an aspect of God, not just a characteristic of God, not just one side of God. He reveals all of God. That's why we saw earlier that Paul says the fullness of God dwelt in him. Not a little part here and there. The fullness of God dwelt in him. And the fullness of God was revealed in him. So if you want to understand the unknowability of God, the holy other side of God, the transcendent part of God, look to Jesus Christ. Here's transcendence for you, okay? Here's this, this unknowable, alien side of God. You want to know how God's transcendence is like? Look at Jesus. When God becomes the almighty God, the creator God becomes a little zygote in the womb of Mary. You wouldn't have thought that was going to happen. That's other. That's strange. That's transcendent. That's incomprehensible. You want to know the, the invisible nature of God, the transcendent nature of God? Don't go speculating on the basis of your own reasoning. Look to Jesus. When Jesus, oh, the old holy God, comes down and hangs out with prostitutes and sinners, that's kind of surprising. When he dies on the cross and becomes our sin, that's kind of surprising. That's wholly other than what we would expect God to do. That's the transcendent nature of God. When God becomes a human being and washes the feet of his disciples that he knows is going to betray him. When God reaches out and feeds the hungry and, 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 and welcomes those who are outcasts and give us his life for humanity. That's the most unexpected thing humans have ever thought of. We wouldn't have thought God would do that. That's his otherness, his strangeness, his transcendence. It's beautiful. It's full of grace and truth. See, the revelation of Jesus goes all the way down. It's not just one part of God. It's his hypostasis, the hypostasis, the heart, the essence of God. It's Jesus all the way down. Amen. It's Calvary all the way down. It, it, it looks like Jesus dying on the cross all the way down. That's the very heart of God. If you get to the core of who God is, you're not going to find a horrible decree. The majority of people are going to go to hell. What you'll find is a whispering prayer, Father, forgive them. That's the very heart of God, the essence of God, who God really is. 
There's no dark side of God. In him, there is no darkness. It's all beauty. It's all grace. And so everything hangs in our believing that and trusting that and putting our confidence in that. And then I'm being transformed by that. Okay, so what do you do with the Old Testament stuff? Oh, by the way, I, I forgot to say this. Ugh. Uh, we were going to take questions today, uh, but I figured out last night that we we're not going to have time for questions. But I'm sure I'm raising some questions. I love questions. So what we're going to do is tomorrow, uh, we're going to take, uh, if you want to, uh, uh, if you have questions you would like to have answered, text them right now. Sorry, I should have been doing this the whole sermon. Uh, text questions, and then we'll take those, and tomorrow we'll address as many as we can. And then next week, I promise we're going to leave some, some more time for, for Q&A. Uh, so text those questions in right now as I'm, as I'm wrapping this thing up. So what, what do we do with the Old Testament? Um, how do you explain those pictures of God that look so different than what we find in Jesus Christ, and especially on Calvary, praying for the forgiveness of, of sinners? And what makes this really a tough question is that, that, that Jesus says in several places that, that the whole Old Testament testifies to him, bears witness to him. John chapter 5, Luke 24, it all bears witness to him. So now you've got to ask the question, how on earth does a, a portrait of God commanding Moses to slaughter everything that breathes, including children, infants, and animals, how does that picture bear witness to Jesus Christ? How does that bear witness to the one who died on the cross and prayed for our forgiveness? What do I have to figure it out? You, you figure it out. Everyone listen to me. <laughs> well, look at it. Uh, okay, so this is the book I've been working on. This is why I'm obsessed with this topic. I've been working on this book for a couple of years and wrestling with this, this, this issue longer than that. And uh, um, the book's already 500 plus pages. And so I got exactly four minutes to share with you uh, my, my thinking on this. Uh, but I'll try. Okay, so follow me on this. This is my way of processing that. This is my way of trying to explain something. This is not doctrine. This is not dogma. This is not the official stance of the Wilderness Church. This is just me. Right now, okay, as I'm, I'm thinking, I'll share it with you. If you like it, fine. If, if you don't, find a better explanation and share it with me, because I'd like to know. Write a book on it. That's what we need. Okay, so look at Follow me on this. Jesus reveals what God is really like, all the way down to the core, right? So Jesus reveals what God is always like. If Jesus reveals what God is really like, he reveals what he's always like. God didn't start becoming Christ-like when Jesus came. No, he's always been that way. So look at Jesus. What do we learn about God and Jesus? Well... He's God incarnate. He became a human being. And he's the God who dies on the cross for our sins. He bears our sins. Now, he only became incarnate with Jesus, but if Jesus reveals what God's always like, then we can know that God is always like this. He's always incarnational, and he's always bearing our sin. He's always stooping down to enter into the humanity of his people, and he's always doing that in a way that will bear their sin. And notice this. When Jesus dies on the cross and bears our sin, it looks profoundly ugly. Uh, he looks like a God-forsaken, and he, he's experiencing this too. He cries out, why have you abandoned me? He looks like a God-forsaken, cursed criminal. Paul says this is a curse. He, he looks guilty. No, he's not guilty, but he looks guilty. Because that's what it looks like when you bear the sin of the world. Seeing this? So if, that's, if God is always like this, then, then it seems to me that we who know what God's really like should read the Old Testament through, that, through those lenses and be looking for examples of where God may have stooped to enter into the humanity of people in a way that would bear their sin and appear ugly. So as I read the Bible and I come across portraits of God, such as slaughter them all, slaughter everything that breathes, pictures of God that, 
that, that don't at all look like the beautiful God that's revealed in Christ. I assume that that says a lot more about the people God had to work with than it says about the true nature of God, because I know the true nature of, of, of God in Jesus Christ, and it's not that. See how this is working? So the authority that those pictures have for me is that they, they testify to the Calvary God. A God is willing to stoop this low and to bear the sin of his people and to appear this way, even though he's not really that way. I, I've sometimes shared this analogy uh, before. Uh, I think it works. Uh, it, it's the movie Nanny McPhee. And they came out with a sequel, which wasn't nearly as good as the first one, but they're both you know, useful for this illustration. Nanny McPhee. Um, Nanny McPhee is this nanny who shows up to these four or five kids who are just hellions. They've just been terrible and they've driven away 17 nannies already. So she shows up and she, she's, she looks like a hag. I mean, she's just ugly. Crooked nose and crooked teeth and hair all over the place and, 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 and grow little warts on her and stuff. So she looks nasty like a witch. Um, and she's got this magic wand too, which when she, uh, or a rod, and when she pounds on the ground, the kids who are misbehaving go take their behavior to the extreme. And they learned by that means that, th- that their behavior really has negative consequences. And over time, the kids gradually come to see that this, this nasty-looking nanny really loves them and cares about them and has their best interest in mind. And they come to see that it's in their best interest to listen to her and go by her rules. And the more they get that, the more they see that. Following. So as the movie goes through, goes on, she gradually loses the warts and her teeth become straight and her hair starts looking better and her nose shrinks and, and looks better. And by the end of the movie, she's Emma Thompson, which is pretty attractive, if you ask me. Um, but see, the thing is, she was always Emma Thompson. In fact, it was Emma Thompson playing that role of this, 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 this witch nanny. But she put on that appearance because that's how the kids saw her. And she entered into their false perceptions of her and played that role for the purpose of gradually leading them to show what she was really like and to show them that she cares about them and it's in their best interest to live according to her ways. That, I submit to you, is sort of what's going on in the Old Testament. We have a Nanny McPhee God who, out of his magnificent love and humility, is willing to enter into, stoop as low as he needs to go. And Manny stoops pretty low. But it reflects Calvary. It's a pre-shadowing of Calvary, where he enters into the humanity of the people he's working with and into this, and bears the sin of the people he's working with. Now, look at Whether you agree with that or not is really inconsequential. That's my way of working out a theological problem. It's not authoritative. It's nothing. If it works, fine. Take it. If it doesn't, like I said, uh, you find a better explanation. What, that's not, that doesn't matter. What does matter, and I close with this, what really matters, what really, 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 really matters is that we lock in. However we explain that stuff, we lock in. That true stuff was revealed there, but the mega revelation, the mega, the superior revelation, the definitive, definitive revelation is found in Jesus. What really matters is that we lock in, that God looks like Jesus Christ all the way down. The transcendent aspect of God looks like Jesus Christ. The heart of God looks like Jesus Christ, dying on a cross. He's a Calvary God. He's a servant God. He's a humble God. A God who gives his life for a lost race of of, of people. And, and, And then the question is this. Will we believe that? Will we trust that? Because everything hangs on that. Your passion for God will be directly proportionate to the picture of God that you have. The beauty of the picture of God that you have. So will you, will, can we trust that? It's the core of our being, that God, will you dare to believe that God really is that beautiful? He's the Calvary God.
Jesus, the exact representation of the Father's essence, the radiance of the Father's true glory. And the glory is him being lifted up on a cross for a race of lost people. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will seal this message uh, in our hearts uh, and will keep us thinking about this. And as I pray, I'd like to ask the, the prayer teams to come forward and um, invite you, if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, come up here and, and pray with these folks. In fact, that's going on all during the worship service, by the way. I encourage you to take advantage of it when that's happening as well. And maybe you're here today and you have been oppressed by uh, false pictures of God. And they're hard to get out of because you're so used to it. It always feels weird when you start to entertain a new picture of God. And I encourage you to come forward and pray about that. Uh, Jesus wants you to be free. He wants to set the captives free. And this is the main way that we are held in captivity. So get free. Get free. And trust that God looks like Jesus Christ. Father, we just praise you for being a beautiful God. uh, A God whose heart is revealed on Calvary. And Holy Spirit, create in us a confidence and a trust that that is so, so that we go to you for every need, that we go to you for our source of life and the joy of our day. Uh, Father, uh, we come against false pictures that we've maybe been afflicted with and that yet plague us, and we bind them in Jesus' name. And we rebuke the enemy, and we declare that, that, that uh, our minds are committed to align with the kingdom and align with Jesus Christ, and to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that God really does look this beautiful. Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to accept your word. In Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. God loves you. I love you. Go out and build the kingdom.